Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. So anyway, that's it for that. With that being said, if you have young children in the service today who can understand the words that are going to come out of my mouth, I would strongly encourage you to take them down to class today due to the nature of the content of this sermon. You know we've been in Song of Solomon and we're continuing today and it may be a bit more graphic than, uh, than what you want your kids to hear or what you want to answer questions about. So I'm giving you a warning. If they don't leave now, uh, I tried. So let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you, uh, as always, that we can come before you and we thank you, as always, for your word that does give us truth and does give us a guide for our life. Uh, we thank you for the example that we see in the Song of Solomon about a godly relationship And we pray that you just uh, speak to us this morning through your word and help us to take these thoughts, these things to to heart. Um, I pray that everything we do this morning, Lord, would bring glory and honor to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me first tell you that uh, Jared, Ellis, and I used to be friends. Okay? (laughs) We really did. And we go back a long way. In case you didn't know, Derek, put that picture up there. In case you didn't know, okay? That's me on the left, and that's Jared on the right. And from what we have been told about this picture, that was at Jared's third birthday. And he's opened up a Tonka truck. Okay, now there's a few things we can learn about, the, or that we can notice about this picture. The first thing is, we are wearing matching tank tops. Okay, the red stripes, the logo, everything's identical. Um... I guess we made bro tanks cool before they were called bro tanks. So, uh, another thing that you can notice about this picture is that we were both born in the 70s and neither one of our parents believed in haircuts. Okay? And then the last thing you can probably tell is that I'm clenching my left fist to my chest, and that's because right after Jared opened that Tonka truck, I beat him up and I still have it in my closet. That's not true. I didn't beat him up. I just threatened him, but I do still have it in my closet. <laughs> but you can see that we go back a long way. We've been friends a lot. We were friends for a long time. We've been buds, pals since we were little guys, but none of that matters anymore. It's over. It's done. Derek, get the next picture up there. This is what I had to do to that picture. <laughs> see, we were friends. But we aren't anymore. Because every time Jared tells me he needs me to preach, he sets me up with a passage like I have today. <laughs> He'll tell me, you know, ahead of time, hey, I need you to preach on a certain day. And I'll ask, well, well what am I going to be preaching on? Well, I don't know yet. Well, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Just plan on preaching that day. He never tells me ahead of time. You know, one time he stuck me with the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 on sexual immorality and prostitutes. Um, you know, another time as we were preaching through Acts, it just happened to fall on my Sunday to preach on Simon the Sorcerer, of all things. Uh, you know, another time I had to preach on uh, not being unequally yoked. It's just convenient how every time it's my turn to preach, something like this pops up. And you know, we've been preaching through the Song of Solomon, which as I said is a pretty graphic book. This book about love, these two uh, lovers, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And today it's my turn to preach, and it just happens to be that somehow I get Song of Solomon chapter 4, 
which is the chapter of the wedding night. So, for Jared and I, that's it. We're done. We're done. All those years of friendship are gone. I ripped the picture. We can't be friends again until he learns how to be nice. But, we cannot, we cannot ignore this chapter in God's Word. We can't just skip over it on our way through the book. And, and so today, we are going to be looking at Song of Solomon chapter 4. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, if you haven't already. I think it was last week, Jared told a, told a story about a crocodile and how it was taking bites out of people. It was harming the people, but no one would talk about it. The crocodile kept attacking the people of the town. The people wouldn't talk about it. They ignored it. They considered it off limits to talk about that topic. They couldn't talk about the crocodile. And so people kept getting hurt by the crocodile because no one would talk about it. They wouldn't put any warnings up. They wouldn't say anything about it. And, and, and the idea is that the church has become this place where we cannot talk about sex. We ignore it. We don't say the word. It's offensive. It's uncomfortable. And believe me, it is uncomfortable to stand up here and talk about it. But, but if we look around the room, if we look around this building this morning, we know that most of us have been hurt by this in some way. We have, we have parts of ourselves that have been cut off or mauled or maimed because of the way sex has been used and abused in our culture and in our lives. But we just can't talk about it at church because it's off limits. You know, it's rude or it's wrong to mention it. But if God is the creator of sex, then he has to have something to say about it, doesn't he? And, and we have to be willing, we have to be diligent to find out what he says about it and to share it, not only to help ourselves, but to share it with those who have been hurt by it. Or, or better yet, better than that, to teach those who haven't been hurt by it yet what God says about this topic to help them. If we don't teach our kids what God says about sex, they're going to hear about it somewhere else. And avoiding this topic leads to more pain and harm than talking about it ever will. And that's why I'm not glad to be standing up here talking about it this morning, but I am glad that we have the book of Song of Solomon, and especially chapter 4 that we're looking at this morning. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, excuse me, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen that, that so far this is a very passionate book. These, these conversations between Solomon and, and his soon-to-be bride, have these conversations have expressed their deep love and their passion for each other. And all of that up until now has just been a build-up. It has led us to this point. Up until now, we've seen them go through this initial attraction, and, and we've seen them go through a dating or courtship type of relationship. But here in chapter 4, we, we reach the wedding. Now, we've talked about this before, but you may remember that, that a good Jewish wedding, especially at that time, didn't look like our wedding ceremony does today. It looked very different. You know, in a typical wedding ceremony for us, you have the ceremony and then, and then everybody goes to this big celebration afterwards. Uh, everybody's invited to the reception and the, the couple who just got married, they stay around for a while. They may leave later in the evening or after the reception's done and they take off and they get away for uh, a time of a honeymoon, you know, a week away, just themselves. And, and so they, had t they have time alone to celebrate their marriage. But in that time, in the, the culture of our text, um, the, the wedding 
procession would have made its way through the streets of the town and, and the wedding party would have been following and there would have been dancing and music and cheering and they get to the, the, the uh, place that the bride, or excuse me, that the groom has prepared for his bride and prepared for their guests this great feast at this location, his house or a, a place he has set aside. And he has everything ready for this party, this feast, to go on for up to seven days with all of their friends and family, all of their guests. And so when they get there after the wedding, they're not going to go off together alone for a week-long trip. But when they get there, when they arrive at the location of this party, they step aside and they go into the bridal chamber that the groom has prepared, and they have a brief time alone before they come back out to this seven-day feast and party. And as we, as we pick up in Song of Solomon chapter 4, it appears that the new husband and wife are alone in the bridal chamber. That's where we find them as this chapter begins. They are in the bridal chamber, stepping away from the party, alone, newly married, ready to celebrate their union. Look with me at verse 1. He starts out, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Now, again, the man starts speaking. Solomon speaks first, and, and, and he takes the lead, and he starts by just looking at her as they've gone away alone, just for these few moments, and he starts by telling her just how beautiful she is. Her eyes are like doves, he says. They're, they're innocent and they're pure. They're tender and they're loving. Guys, first of all, we need to notice how this man does not begin with anything physical. He doesn't touch her hair or step in and kiss her right away. He tells her what she means to him and how she looks to him and how she makes him feel. He starts a physical relationship by connecting with her emotionally and mentally. And most of us guys are very bad at that and probably need to pay attention. He, he goes on. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Time out. <laughs> we don't have to take notes on everything. Um, but he, he really does know what he's saying. He knows what he's doing here. He, he's just talking about how if you were looking from the distance and you see, and the goats around there were always black, and if you're looking from the distance and you saw these, these flocks of goats descending down the mountain, moving in unison, it was just a beautiful sight off in the distance. And so he sees the dark color of her hair all flowing down her side. She has put her hair down, or he has put her hair down. It's flowing down her neck and shoulders, and he thinks that her dark hair is just beautiful flowing down her sides. He he goes on, verse, well, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, and one of them, and not one of them, is alone. He says her teeth are clean, her teeth are straight, and they're all there. She's got them all. <laughs> they all have their twin. Now, that may seem trivial, but before modern dentistry... Uh, to have all of your teeth at, at that point in life was probably a miracle. And he says, they're straight, they're clean, and they're all together. 
Your smile is beautiful. My question is, why is she smiling? Because she's enjoying this moment just as much as he is. He sees her teeth because she is glowing. She's smiling at him. <clears throat> he goes on, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So he tells her, your lips are dark red. Your face is full of color. You, you carry yourself with dignity and with the nobility of a queen. And, and warriors would fight to protect you and to win you. He, he couldn't be happier to have this woman as his bride, as his queen at this moment. Now, at this point, notice what he has done so far. He started by looking at her and saying she's beautiful. And then he begins to describe her beauty to her from the top down. He, he looks at her eyes and her hair and then her teeth and her lips and her cheeks and her neck. And he's, he's admiring from the top down the body of his new bride. And he isn't just staring at her waiting for her to say, what or stop it. He's describing her perfection to her. He's letting her know how he feels about her. Verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. I'm sure you get the picture here. This is a very intimate and tender moment between the groom and his brand new bride. He goes on, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. Again, he's talking about how he doesn't want this time with her to end. He wants to stay right here, breathing in her beauty. Verse 7, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now let me stop for just a moment and, and point out a couple of things here as we work our way through the passage. Uh, first of all, he says there is no flaw in you. No flaw in you. Is, is that true? Is it possible that that's true? No, it's not possible that she is a perfect woman. There's no such thing as a perfect man. There's no such thing as a perfect woman. It cannot possibly true, be true. Now, I'm sure there are things about herself that she wanted to change. You remember back in chapter 1, she said to him, Stop staring at me because I am dark from the sun. We know that she's self-conscious about something, but, but he tells her there is no flaw in you. He doesn't see a flaw. He doesn't focus on her faults. He sees only her good. He presents her as perfect and flawless. You don't hear him say here in this passage, you don't hear him say, well, sweetie, your, your lips are pretty and your neck is elegant, but we've got to do something about your ears. <laughs> They're so big, they flap in the wind like a ship's sail. You don't hear him say, I, I love your smile and your eyes are great, but, but when you walk, your thighs sound like thunder clapping. <laughs> now, that's... that's that's silly, but listen, you can easily overlook the point. Listen to what I'm saying. You know, two compliments don't give you the right to make a criticism. You don't get to say, I like this and this, but I don't like that. It's time to change. You got to do something about this. You don't see that in here. He says she is perfect. Is she perfect? No, she's not perfect, but he sees her as perfect. He doesn't focus on anything that is wrong. She's only as perfect as you tell her she is. And again, most of us fellas were terrible at that. The woman in this text wasn't perfect. 
But Solomon presented her as perfect. He described her for us to read as perfect. He told his friends about her perfection. He didn't dwell on the time that she burned the biscuits or on the time that she forgot to wash his clothes. He thought of her as faultless. He told her she was flawless. He presented her as perfect. But what you're going to say to me is, Luke, that's, that's much easier to do on, on wedding day than it is when you've been married 10 or 20 or 50 years. It's a lot easier to, to focus on the good things and not the bad when you're in the middle of the excitement of being newly married. And, and that may be true. But the reason for that is not because your spouse is any less perfect than she was when you met them or married them. The reason is because we grow lazy and selfish. <clears throat> it seems that the longer you're in a relationship, the easier it is to focus on the things that you want and need rather than on what you can do for your spouse. And if you're sitting here thinking, Man, I'm glad he said that this morning because he or she so needed to hear that. Then you're the one who's missing the point. If you're sitting here thinking, well, he needs to understand how much I do for him or she needs to know how much I give to her, then your attitude is wrong and you need to repent because you're for focused more on what you do and have done and on what you think you deserve than on what you can do for that spouse and what you can give. Now, I don't know if you saw it in the paper this week, but there was, there was an interesting article about a 70-year-old man in Kansas City who was arrested for bank robbery. This is a true story. I read it in the paper. He walked into the bank with a note. He gave it to the teller, and the note said, I want all the money, and I have a gun. So when he got the money, 70-year-old man, got the money from the teller, he walked out into the bank lobby and sat down in the chair, and when the guard walked up to him, he said, I'm the man you're looking for. And when they asked him, why did you rob the bank and not try to get away? He said, because going to jail beats living with my wife. I am not making this up. It was, in, it was in the Isle of Register. It was from Kansas City. That man did not marry a perfect woman 50 years ago or whatever who became imperfect after all of those years. That man couldn't live with his wife anymore because he quit trying to present her as blameless. He quit trying to present her and see her as flawless. He quit trying to tell her and show her how perfect she was and what she meant to him. He focused on her faults and on his needs. And he gave up on that relationship long before he walked into that bank. And that brings us to the second thing that I want to point out at this part in the passage. When, when he says, when Solomon says, there is no flaw in you. The Hebrew word here for flaw literally means spot, blemish, or defect. He, he says, I, I cannot see any spot, blemish, or defect in you. And the interesting thing about that is that the Apostle Paul paraphrases this verse when he wrote the book of Ephesians, when he talks about husbands and wives. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 just for a minute. <clears throat> I'm going to read starting verse 25. This is Paul writing. 
In verse 22, he talks to wives. In verse 25, he starts talking to husbands. And he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. When the people heard that, they thought of Song of Solomon chapter 4. It doesn't say that the husband keeps her holy, that she was holy, she was perfect, and he keeps her holy. It says that he makes her holy. It doesn't say that she is perfect. It says that he presents her as perfect. Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy. That's us. Christ gave himself up for the church to make us holy, and he presents us, his church, his bride, as holy and blameless without spot or blemish. And in the same way, Paul says, the husband gives himself up for his bride and he presents his bride as holy and blameless without spot or blemish. And Paul connects this idea of the husband from Song of Solomon to the role that Christ plays for you and me. And he says that is the continued role of a husband. He should continue day after day, year after year, continue to present his bride to himself and to the world as perfect and flawless. Not just on the wedding night, but 50 years later too. Because that's what Christ has done for you. Men, your, your bride should be perfect in your eyes and in your words and in your actions. And, and when you make her feel that way, she will be. When you give her the same grace that Christ gave you, she will love you more than she ever has before. We need to get back to our text. Verse 8, Solomon continues, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar, the, hum, uh, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the lepers. Now, from what I understand about these mountains that he mentions, they were, commonly, or they were known for commonly having lions and leopards making their lairs in them. They were dangerous. It was a dangerous part of the country, and they were scary. And he's simply telling his bride here, there's no reason to be scared. This is a safe place. This relationship is safe. She's safe with him. She's safe because of him. He's going to protect her from outside harm. And he wants her to know that he's not going to harm her himself. She can leave those fears behind and know that she is secure now in this relationship. Verse 9, you've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. Now, I should probably point out here that this is the first time he calls her sister. sister, And he will call her that a couple of more times. And in the chapters before, you know, they have referred to each other as darling and dove and, and lover. But now he calls her sister and bride. And to us, that's going to sound strange because nobody in here would want to call their bride sister. But it's a common way for them to just say, we are now family. We are tied together. We are more closely related now. They are married and the two have become one flesh. It's strange to us. But to them, it simply meant that they are now one. He goes on. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Now, 
Lips and tongue here can also be, be translated in the Hebrew as speech and language. And he's most likely in that verse telling her that her voice is sweet to him. Her lips have honey and milk and honey are under her tongue. He's probably saying that the things you say in your voice sounds sweet to me. And it makes sense to interpret it that way if you look at the fact in, in these last few verses that he mentions four of the five senses. He mentions sight, your eyes have stolen my heart. He mentions taste, your love is more pleasing than wine. He mentions smell, your fragrance is more pleasing than any spice. And he mentions, mentions hearing or sound, your words are sweet to my ears. But he doesn't mention touch because he's saving the best for last. Verse 12, as we near the end of the chapter, he says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed a sealed fountain. And if you're thinking like me, when you first read that, then you're, this phrase is exactly what you think it means. The, the groom started with the features of the bride's head and his face, and he's worked his way down. He mentioned all of the senses of his body, except for touch or physical feeling. And now he says to her, you have kept your garden closed until now. You have protected your purity, and you have saved yourself for this moment. A garden that is locked and a spring that is enclosed. You have saved yourself for me. Now you know that this has been a, a very passionate book. And Jared has pointed out several things in the last few chapters about the passion of this couple. But if you remember on two separate occasions, in both chapter 2 and in chapter 3, the woman said that they were going to wait she said, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. She was telling him back then that the time is not right. We are waiting. We're waiting until the wedding night. We are waiting to become one flesh. And here in verse 12, Solomon confirms that they waited for this night by saying that she has kept her garden locked and she has kept her spring sealed. And as awkward as it is, to read something like this passage and even more so to preach from it and talk about it, I'm very glad that we haven't. Because I believe that, that if there's only one reason that God actually left us this book of the Bible, it's to emphasize how he created sex to be enjoyed. And when you read this chapter, Song of Solomon 4, you, you see that there is no shame in this relationship in the marriage bed. There's no guilt, there's no fear. When a man and woman become one flesh in marriage, God gives them this gift to enjoy together. Now, there are plenty of warnings throughout Scripture about how we should flee sexual immorality and how we should keep the marriage bed pure and, and how sex outside of marriage is a sin against ourselves and God and, and it's destructive to our lives. But, but it is good to not have to listen to the warnings and to see a book like Song of Solomon when we can get a glimpse of what God thinks is the proper way to enjoy this gift that he gives us. Look again at the text, verse 12 again. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So he compares, as he finishes up, he compares his bride to, to a variety of fruit 
and spices. And, and many of these things mentioned here, not that it matters the specifics necessarily, but many of these things mentioned here are not things that were grown locally in their region. It was something that would have had to have been expensively imported from other places. And he compares her to these things that, that were a wide variety of expensive spices that cost a lot, but they were worth the cost. And he compares her to a fountain of, of water flowing from Lebanon where, where the streams were fed with, with waters from snow-covered mountains. The water there was cold and refreshing. And he says to his bride that he ex, or she excites him more than any of those things. And she's worth more than any of those things. And then we see for the very first time in this chapter, as it comes to a close, the woman speaks. She responds. She responds to the compliments that Solomon has given her. She, she has listened as he has spoken every word to her with gentle tenderness. She has soaked up all of these praises that he has poured out on her. And, and she responds to him in verse 16, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. You know what that means. And I want you to notice in verse 12 how Solomon calls her a garden and a spring. And in verse 13, he refers to her plants being an orchard. But here in verse 16, the bride says they are now his. When she says, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. He says, now this is yours too. Because the two have become one flesh as God intended. And what we have in Song of Solomon 4 is a picture of God's intention for what happens when a man leaves his mother and his father and he cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. What a beautiful portrait it is of how sex is supposed to begin inside of marriage and how these two partners are created to complement each other perfectly. In this chapter, we have an eloquent demonstration of, of how this specific act is built upon gentleness and tenderness and respect for each other. And we can see and understand here how the marriage bed is a safe place for two people to come together in the way that God intended. But we also have that example that we saw of how a husband lays down his life to present his bride as perfect. Not to focus on her faults and her flaws, but to make her perfect just as Christ did for each of us. Now, if you're anything like me, you struggle with letting day-to-day -day life get you out of the habit of putting your spouse first. I forget to be kind. I forget to be compassionate. I forget to be passionate. I forget to be loving and patient. I forget to present my bride as perfect. As a matter of fact, I, I felt so bad about this one time that I decided I was just going to show my wife how much I loved her. And so while she was at work, I ran home and took a shower and uh, got cleaned up, shaved, put cologne on, nice clothes, and then I ran to the store and I got a bouquet of flowers. And when I got home, she was there. So I just walked up to the door and I knocked on the door. And when she answered the door, 
her face just dropped and she said, oh no, this has already been a terrible day. First I had to take Kendall to the emergency room and then your mom called and said she wants to stay with us over the weekend. Then the washing machine broke and now you show up drunk. That is not a true story. (laughs) But what is true is that I often, or probably more often than not, forget the importance of putting my wife first, as I'm sure many of you do. But I hope that you can understand from this passage, as, as I do, that the basis of a good marriage and the basis of an intimate relationship with your spouse is gentleness and tenderness and compassion. Ironically, it's the same thing that is the basis for every relationship that we have. A good relationship is built on gentleness, tenderness, and compassion for that other person. And in this chapter, we we saw how this bride was swept off of her feet by the kindness of the groom. God has created us to put other people first. And he demonstrated that for us by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He makes us perfect. And he presents us as his church, as his people, his bride. He presents us as blameless and pure without blemish. And there's nothing to be more thankful for than that. He calls you to treat your spouse. And he calls you to treat the other people in your life with the same grace and compassion. If you don't know Jesus Christ, and if you don't know that he can make you perfect, he can make you holy, he wants to present you as flawless, please find one of us today after we're done and talk to us about what you need to know about who Jesus Christ is and what he's asking you to do. Let's take time to pray. You got anything? We'll pray, and we'll get out of here. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for such a delicate passage. But we thank you that we can read it, and we can know something about you. We can know what you want from us. You gave us this passage for a purpose, and that is to see what your picture of a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife should look like. Lord, help us all to be more gentle, and loving and compassionate to treat our spouses and to treat the other people around us with tenderness and with grace. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, you have made us holy. You have presented us as your perfect bride. We thank you for Jesus and we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.